Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker, and I have a question for you. Just how nasty do you think litigation can get? I posed that question to three power lawyers that we'll hear from during this episode. I mean, I've certainly seen forged documents that were at the heart of the case. I've seen people lie and break down during deposition. I got her to admit that she had learned how to set somebody up with the Department of Children and Family Services in the state of Florida. The integrity of our system is at stake every time that a private lawyer, a judge, a a prosecutor, an agency lawyer steps outside the bounds of what's legal. I think the system itself is at stake. In this episode, we'll talk about deceased billionaire Kurt Kikorian's fight with his ex-wife over child support, Roman Polanski's fight with the government, and a really nasty fight over, of all things, Winnie the Pooh. What all of these cases have in common is that they involve instances of what I like to describe as lawlessness and litigation. And in this episode of the show, I will talk to the lawyers who worked on those cases about how they fought back when the other side didn't play fairly. First, I speak with Michael Trope of Trope Fine LLP. Michael is a noted family and trial lawyer who represented Lisa Bonder, a former professional tennis player, in a bitter child support dispute with her ex-husband, the now deceased billionaire Kirk Kikorian. Kikorian was represented by attorney Terry Christensen, who was once one of the most powerful and influential lawyers in the country. The Kikorian-Bonder child support battle was bitter. After seeking considerably more, Bonder was awarded $50,000 a month in support. But that wasn't the end of it. As a result of some things that subsequently came to light, attorney Terry Christensen ended up in jail. Here's how it happened. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So, Michael... Your client, Lisa Bonder and Kurt Kikorian, had been involved in a relationship for some time. They were married, however, for only 28 days. When they divorced, uh, Ms. Bonder sought $320,000 in child support. In 2002, she gets a child support award. What was her award from the court? Her award was $50,000 the $50,000. Now, there was no knowledge in 2002 that any wrongdoing had taken place. And then after being awarded that $50,000, she subsequently discovers that her phone's been bugged, her whole defense strategy, and a whole bunch of other personal information has been fed to her ex-husband's lawyers. Correct. And that's when you come in. Correct. And she says to you... I got this court decision that says I'm only entitled to $50,000 a month. But as it turns out, my ex-husband's lawyers were bugging my phone. They had all my secret information. So then what do you do? How do you get the court to unwind that judgment? So what we did is, first of all, we had a lot of evidence because Mr. Christensen had been indicted and then subsequently became convicted. Mr. Christensen being Kurt Krikorian's then lawyer who hired the private investigator, Anthony Pelicano. Correct. So what had happened is that in 2006, 
or thereabouts, the FBI was conducting an investigation of Anthony Pelicano for violations of weapons charges. And pursuant to a search warrant, they found some tapes in a safe. And in those tapes in the safe, they found tape-recorded conversations between Anthony Pelicano and Terry Christensen. Based on the contents of those tapes, the investigation essentially revealed that back in 2002, during the child support proceeding that was going on between Kirk and Lisa, that all of Lisa's telephone conversations had been wiretapped by Anthony Pelicano, who was being paid and directed by Terry Christensen. And the telephone conversations included her phone calls with her lawyers, her therapist, her friends, and also telephone conversations with a mediator. So essentially, Pelicano, during the litigation, knew the game plan, had invaded the attorney-client privilege, had invaded the psychotherapist-patient privilege, had invaded the mediation privilege, and essentially was able to feed to Kirk Kerkorian's attorney all of the information on conversations she had with her lawyer, her therapist, the mediator, and her friends. So what we did from a technical standpoint is we filed a motion in the family law court asking for the following relief. Number one, to set aside the 2002 order on the basis that there was not a fair trial. Number two, that we have a new trial. Number three, that during the new trial as a sanction for the illegal conduct that Mr. Krikorian not be able to present any evidence Number four, that as the result of him not being able to put on any evidence, that a default be taken against Mr. Krikorian. And a default meaning that he just loses automatically. But retroactive to the date of her original filing for $324,000 per month. So you learn about the wiretap. She hires you and you say to the judge, this whole decision was based on a fraud on my client, on a fraud on you. They broke the rules when they went to court before. And as a consequence of having broken those rules, Your Honor, you've got to give us all of these things and you've got to award my client how much money? Well, it would have been, in theory, if we had gone to trial, $324,000 retroactive per for, month for 100 months. So we're looking at around $30 million. $30 million. Some big number. That was Michael Trope discussing some of the strange and illegal twists and turns that took place during the course of his client Lisa Bonder's child support dispute with the now deceased billionaire Kurt Kikorian. Kurt Kikorian's lawyer, Terry Christensen, was sentenced to three years in prison for his role in wiretapping Bonder's phone. And the private investigator he hired, Anthony Pelicano, was sentenced to 15 years. And here's another interesting twist. Baby Kira, over whom this whole dispute centered, wasn't even Kerkorian's child. Here's Michael Trope. Lisa had a long-term relationship with Kirk. Apparently, during the course of that relationship, they had a fight. He was 50 years older than her in his mid-80s. From what I understand, he knew that he was infertile. And during the breakup, which lasted only about two weeks, apparently she had relations with another person. She then reconciled with Mr. Krikorian. She got pregnant and she had a baby. Now, Mr. Krikorian was no fool. This is a man that amassed a fortune, multi-billions. He knew what his scenario in life was at that point, and he had choices to make. And the choice 
from my understanding, and I wasn't there back at that time, is that he chose to do a prepackaged marriage with Lisa so that he could legitimize the child and then chose to take care of that child, which he did for a number of years. And the dispute only took place when they then had a real fight and really broke up several years after that. That goes to the second issue. Kerkorian's lawyers during the time period that they illegally wiretapped Lisa's phones determined that they thought that Mr. Bing was the actual biological father. And so they then, at that point in time, wanted to prove who the biological father was. And so as the result of the wiretapping and information that they got during the wiretapping, they went to Steve Bing's home and went through his trash that was on his property and found dental Oh, they floss. stole his dental floss. Correct. Then supposedly did a DNA test that linked Steve Bing's DNA to Kira's DNA. However, to this day, I've never seen that DNA test or any results or any expert that's ever opined that he was the father. But there is no dispute in terms of the biological father. He's the biological father. All that being said, Mr. Krikorian, since he was married to Ms. Bonder and at some point had assumed paternity, was nonetheless willing to maintain Kira's support. Kind of. I mean, in California, there are all these weird scenarios where somebody doesn't have to actually adopt a child if they are listed on the birth certificate as the parent, and then they spend a certain time period assuming that parental role and pay support on a voluntary basis. There are all kinds of different labels, presumed parent and whatnot, where they essentially become legally obligated to that child. So she never made any affirmative representation that he was the biological father? Not while I represented her. The only thing that was being brought up over and over and over again by the time I got in the case was the other side bad-mouthing and dirtying Lisa's name up by saying, oh, she had this child with somebody other than Kirk, and now she wants Kirk to pay all of this money. And it was funny because we were in front of Judge Marjorie Steinberg at the beginning of the case, and I was asking for some legal fees because I had to fight, you know, Goliath. The other side, you know, uh, made an argument, why should uh, Lisa Bonder get legal fees from Kirk Kerkorian? It's not even his child, and look how generous he's been, da-da-da-da-da. And then Judge Steinberg made a comment uh, and said, well, would we even be here today with Mr. Trope asking for legal fees if it were not for the illegal conduct of Mr. Pelicano and his attorneys. That was Michael Trope. Kirk Corian testified he never knew about the wiretapping and he was never charged with any wrongdoing. I also spoke to Chad Hummel, who represented another player in the Christensen, Pelicano, Kerkorian drama. Chad is a nationally recognized trial lawyer and co-leader of the national trial practice at the law firm of Sidley and Austin. And he represented Sergeant Mark Arneson, a police officer who was found guilty of illegally providing confidential information to Anthony Pelicano. Sergeant Mark Arneson was sentenced to 10 years in prison. I spoke to Chad about what his client's position on all of this was. What was Sergeant Arneson's defense in this case? His defense was effectively that he didn't know what Anthony Pelicano was doing with the information that he was providing. And so, therefore, he was not liable under the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO. The theory was that you had to know about all aspects of the scheme in order to be a participant and held liable for the scheme. 
So just to be clear, Anthony Pelicano investigates that person, is accused of paying a bribe to your client to get background information on that person. Your client's position is, I took the money, but I didn't know what he was going to do with the info. I took the money in order to run information through law enforcement databases, like a DMV database, give a driver's license information, maybe some criminal background. But I had no idea what Anthony Pelicano was going to do with that information. So it sounds like, Chad, your defense was sort of legally specific in that he wasn't saying I didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't saying it's okay to take money on the side to investigate people. Your position was my client isn't guilty of this particular charge in the way that the prosecutor is coming at him. Do I have that right? You have it sort of right. There was another aspect of the defense, which was Mr. Arneson denied that he took the money to provide law enforcement information. What he said was, I was on retainer for, I'm making it up, I think it was like $2,000 a month, to be on call for Mr. Pelicano to do security work, to do investigative work, to do some tailing. But it also involved providing that law enforcement information. The other thing I'll say, Tanya, is there was an element of jury nullification in this defense, which meant I wanted to say that Anthony Pelicano had the right side of the argument. And so, therefore, Mr. Arneson had the right side of the argument. We've had this discussion a little bit offline, but that, in fact, every client that he represented was in the right morally in connection with the whole situation, but clearly wiretapping your opponents getting law enforcement information that you shouldn't have otherwise have access to. That's where Mr. Arneson admitted that he crossed the line. So, Chad, you wanted the jury to say he may have broken the law, but the people whose rights he was violating were so shady that you should let him off. Of course, you can never say that expressly. But any defense lawyer, Tanya, you know, who talks about the concept of jury nullification is saying, yes, obviously, as a lawyer, I always say, follow the judge's instructions and apply the law as you see to the facts. But there's an element of underlying sympathy where every defense lawyer is going to say, I want the jury to understand where my client was coming from and not be convicted of the most serious offense a federal law enforcement officer or U.S. attorney can throw at you, which is RICO. In this case, you really wanted the jury to understand that the people who your client had harmed had perhaps dirty hands, right? You know, unclean hands. So I had a conversation with Michael Trope, who represented Lisa Bonder, and your client, Sergeant Arneson, was accused of providing information to Bonder's ex-husband's lawyer, Kirk Kikorian. Yes. Yeah. He provided DMV information, criminal history information, anything that law enforcement databases would have on her. From Sergeant Arneson's perspective, he didn't know anything about the underlying case. He would get a call from Mr. Pelicano, give me information on Lisa Bonder. He would provide it. That was the extent of Mr. Arneson's participation. As it turned out, the paternity allegations made by Ms. Bonder were untrue. And Mr. Pelicano was able to prove that, but used unlawful means to do it. It's a good example of the desperate measures to which people go when they feel the law is failing them. Absolutely. And by the way, that is when people get in the most trouble. Even if they've done something wrong, I believe our society and the legal system is perfectly prepared to forgive them, to make them do some measure of punishment, but to let them get on with their life. If the person who has done something wrong is cornered and lies 
or does anything else to try to get out of it and not accept responsibility, that's when the law tends to throw the book at people. That's when they're unforgiving. And by the way, I'll say this about Mr. Arneson. The sentencing in the case just occurred. The appellate process lasted 10 years. You go figure that, right? But ultimately, the resentencing of Mr. Arneson was severe because the judge found that he lied about the severity of the underlying conduct and not because of the underlying conduct. In other words, he might have gotten 12 months had he simply admitted, yes, I provided law enforcement information to Mr. Pelicano. But the judge found that he lied about the extent of it and the money that he received, and he ended up getting 12 years. It's the cover-up, not the crime, always, isn't it, Chad? Exactly. That was Chad Hummel. Look, I've had family lawyers tell me that family court can be like the Wild West. But it's not just in those cases that lawlessness can reign in litigation. Next, I spoke to Paul Derby, a partner at the trial firm Skiermont Derby. Paul represented the Walt Disney Company in an action brought against that company by the heirs of the creator of the Winnie the Pooh character, who were suing the Walt Disney Company over rights and royalties. Let's just say that some things took place in that case that would very likely get you banished out of Pooh land, and Paul had quite a hand in bringing them to light. I spoke to Paul about some of the crazy things that he's seen as a trial lawyer. What are the sorts of things that you've seen opponents do that have really taken you by surprise and said, wow, like, I thought we were in court. I didn't know that it was about to be a street fight. I mean, we've seen a lot. Uh, I mean, I've certainly seen forged documents that were at the heart of the case. I've seen people lie and break down during deposition. And I've had uh, mea culpas on video. Uh, I've seen people just in the face of incontrovertible evidence continue to lie. I mean, the most egregious is probably the case that we discussed a little bit. Schlesinger v. Walt Disney. Paul, tell us what you did and what happened. Uh, Schlesinger is about as interesting as they come. It's, it's probably the landmark case now in California for terminating sanctions for this type of abuse that you've described. It's a particularly egregious set of facts. The punchline is that I believe family members for the primary plaintiff who was the uh, holder of the uh, intellectual property in Winnie the Pooh, family members and folks who were affiliated with the family members more specifically really did some nasty stuff. The allegations were, and ultimately the court was persuaded that people had broken into buildings at Disney, (laughs) rifled through trash dumpsters on the property at Disney, trespassed, and uh, in the process obtained core attorney work product, uh, attorney-client privilege communication. And in fact, this started to unravel for the plaintiff when the son of uh, a guy who was a former boyfriend or somehow affiliated with the daughter, had recently been admitted to prison. Uh, I got a chance with uh, a former FBI agent that we had retained. I got a chance to interview him twice. In prison? uh, You you interviewed him in in prison? Yeah, he uh, kind of fessed up to some of the stuff that ultimately got the case dismissed. And this was, I believe, the, the first time that we'd had someone confirming what we thought might be true. And uh, eventually signed a, a declaration that we hand wrote while I was in prison. And that sort of started the chain of events that led to uh, other people confessing documents in their possession they could not have obtained other than through these nefarious means. And things I'd been involved with for a long period of time resulted in the case being dismissed. There was a period where I felt like I was playing private investigator as much as I was playing lawyer. 
I mean, it was really egregious. So wait, let, let me you just you don't, you don't get that. Often. Yeah. Let me just back up and make sure that people have their heads around this. So you're representing the Walt Disney Company in this lawsuit that's being filed by the heirs of Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> the Winnie the Pooh creator. And Correct. lawsuits for hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, I started our conversation by talking about the rules of play. And when you're fighting in court, when you've got litigation, there are rules for how you get information. You serve discovery. You say, send me these documents in 30 days. What these folks in your case did was not that. What you're telling us is that they said, let's just go break into the building, rifle through the trash, take what we feel like getting, regardless of whether or not we're entitled to it. It was something kind of like that. Uh, Exactly like that. And then you find out from a guy who's already in jail that this is how it went down. How did you know to go to the person in prison and get the information? You know, the benefit of being in a case that involves hundreds of millions of dollars, and obviously a client like Walt Disney has the resources to put on a more vigorous defense, you're able to turn over every stone. And so this is probably not something brought to light in a case of, uh, you know, significantly lower dollar amount. Uh, which is, you know, why I think sometimes this sort of misconduct may occur is that it often doesn't get caught. Uh, we had the benefit of a healthy budget to be able to defend such a big claim. And there was a production of documents back to us that included our own privileged materials. And at that point, I think anyone, let alone a lawyer paid to be curious, would in fact be curious. And, you know, we just set in motion depositions and interviews and other discovery that ultimately just shined a very bright flashlight on what was going on behind the scenes and had the good fortune to be able to expose it. That was Paul Derby. So if someone breaks the rules, how much equity or fairness can they reasonably expect from the process? Here again is Chad Hummel with a story about one of his more infamous clients. One of your very famous clients, Chad, is now barred from coming back into the country. You are the lawyer for one Roman Polanski. Right, I was. You may recall, Tanya, in 2008, an HBO documentary came out by Marina Zenovich. It's an amazing documentary, and I commend it to anyone who likes sitting down and watching a fascinating legal story unfold. But I watched that and was called by Mr. Polanski's first lawyer, Doug Dalton, who's one of the deans of the L.A. trial bar, and his then agent, Jeff Berg, who um, founded ICM. And they said, we'd like you to look at this, see what you think. I watched the movie. I said, well, we've got to move the court for some relief. So just everybody's up to speed. Chad, give us a quick recap of the case. In 1978, he pleaded guilty to one count of unlawful sex with a minor. She was 13. She was 13. He was 40 something, 42 or 43. Pleaded guilty. And was sentenced by a judge in Santa Monica, Lawrence Rittenband, to a term of what's called, it was then called a psychiatric evaluation in Chino. And the judge said, if you complete that satisfactorily and you don't take this deal to the press, two conditions, that will be your entirety of your time served. The prosecutor in the case was a man named Roger Gunson. He objected to the sentence and the judge said, I'm going to do it anyway. When the time at Chino was up, Judge Rittenband changed his mind. Because that seems like a ridiculous sentence for having sex with a 13-year-old when you're 40. Well, that's one of the problems now, obviously. Is we live, live in a much different day and age. But the truth is that was a very common sentence for a sex crime at the time, which was effectively statutory rape, but it was called unlawful sex with a minor. So the question is, 
Is the judge ever justified in making a promise to a criminal defendant who relies on it, does the time and gets out and then basically says, I'm going to put you in jail and throw away the key unless you agree voluntarily to deport yourself. Judge Rittenband broke the deal. Mr. Polanski chose to leave the country and has not been back. So what happened when I came in the case, Tanya, is the DA, Steve Cooley at the time, denied that the deal had ever taken place. And Roger Gunson, to his credit, even though he was certainly no Roman Polanski fan, went under oath and testified that was the deal. That was the promise. So there was a deal. Yes. But the judge said no go. Correct. Unless you voluntarily deport yourself. He fled. There was another sentencing hearing to be had. Doug Dalton showed up. Mr. Polanski was in London. And so forever after, the L.A. District Attorney's Office has taken the position that he is a fugitive. Well, he is because he fled. Technically, he is a fugitive. Yes. But our view and the position we took in the case was not that the underlying conduct was defensible, but that he had pleaded guilty, accepted responsibility, done his sentence, and the judge in the case should impose time served and be done. And the judge refused, saying there's something called, to your point, Tanya, the fugitive disentitlement doctrine. I realize this is being very now hyper-technical. You can't, as a person who fled the jurisdiction, invoke the court's help in any way. And so the court said, I'm not even going to hear it. Now, we took that decision to the Court of Appeal, and the Court of Appeal wrote an extraordinary 50-page opinion, the end of which said, we all know what really happened here, and we encourage all parties to get together and resolve this. To this day, the district attorney has not engaged in any dialogue with me or any other lawyers representing Mr. Polanski. The courts are saying we're not going to hear it because he fled. He's a fugitive. Why is there any equity in his favor at this point? The equity in his favor at this point is that the undisputed facts show that he fled because the judge was threatening to put him in jail and throw away the key. The consequences of voluntary deportation were dire at the time. The consequences or the potential risk of him staying here would have ruined him. So he believed, I think, with reason that the L.A. court system had not treated him fairly. They'd already reneged on one deal with his liberty at stake. And he, I think, objectively, reasonably thought this is a good alternative. Now, I think when he left, he thought he was leaving for good. But when the facts were really exposed in Ms. Zinovich's documentary, which is spectacular, I think the court should have looked at this. And the Court of Appeal urged the district attorney and the Superior Court to look at this. When you think about all of the complaints that people are hearing about the system, right or wrong, Chad, you know, I'm not touting mob justice, but for him to get the sort of relief that he's now seeking, I think it would inflame people, don't you? Yes, I think you've hit the nail on the head and it would take a judge with tremendous integrity and tremendous courage to do what is clearly under the law, the right thing. The legal system stands for the proposition that if you make a deal, you stand by it. That applies to the court system. That applies to the prosecutor's office. That applies to civil attorneys. I'm glad you said that, Chad. The whole point of our system and the whole point of our judicial system is to be above the fray of the loud voices outside. You know, my outrage may be one thing, but for the decision maker, you've got to look past everybody's outrage and look toward what the law says and what the law requires. You're exactly right. In my view, the integrity of our system is at stake every time that a private lawyer, a judge, a a prosecutor, an agency lawyer steps outside the bounds of what's legal. I think the system itself is at stake, and we all have a duty as lawyers to step up and correct it. Now, I'm being very Pollyannish. I get it. But in this Polanski case, for the very reason you just said, 
that it's so distasteful. The underlying offense is in this day and age, and even then was severe and serious. But he did what a defendant is supposed to do. You accept responsibility, you accept the punishment that the court meets out, and you serve your sentence, which is what he did. And only because a judge faced the very criticism, even at that time, from the public that he changed his mind. But in this case, when I took on the co-counsel role with Mr. Dalton and his son, Bart, and we pursued this, the DA, I was told to my face by Mr. Cooley, and this is the first time I've ever said this, he said to me, Chad, I've heard a lot about you. He said, I want you to know, and he sort of whispered, I'm not going to be intimidated by your integrity of the system arguments. But but what happened worse was the following, that the L.A. District Attorney's Office went to the United States Department of Justice to seek extradition of Mr. Polanski, candidly in retribution for us filing the motion to have the case dismissed by bringing all this stuff up. They went to Switzerland. You may remember this, Tanya. And they had him arrested and thrown in a Swiss prison where he spent the better part of a year behind bars and then under home arrest. And they did so on an affidavit prepared by the L.A. District Attorney's Office. This is under oath where they said that Mr. Polanski was put in psychiatric evaluation for the purpose of determining what his sentence would be. Okay, now, you know, because of what I just told you, that's not true. They put under oath to the Swiss government through our DOJ, our Department of Justice, a false fact. And the fact should have been that Mr. Polanski was sentenced. And we have a dispute about what the impact of that is. But they said instead, no, the reason he went to Chino for a psychiatric evaluation was to determine the length of his sentence. So in response to a motion to get Roman Polanski his freedom to come back to America, the district attorney filed a motion seeking to extradite him from Switzerland back to the United States and falsely stated that the time that Polanski had spent in Chino was not the sentence, but it was simply time that he was spending while they determined what the sentence would be. Exactly. And when I took the conditional examination, remember I told you about the prosecutor, Roger Gunson, we put him under oath in the case after they had filed this affidavit in Switzerland. And Roger Gunson said, that's a false affidavit. So they went after Polanski. This was in 2010, 2009. They went after him in Switzerland on a false pretense. And so what happened as a result of that false statement? There was a formal proceeding in Switzerland where Mr. Polanski was separately represented and the Swiss government determined that we were right and they refused to extradite him, which is one of the very few times ever that a close ally like Switzerland of the United States. And remember, the relationship is between the State Department and the Swiss government where the Swiss government said to the State Department, no, and we see no prospect that he will be treated fairly if we extradite. So as a result of this false statement that was included in the affidavit, the Swiss government said you lied and we're not going to extradite him because the American system is not treating him fairly. In so many words. That was Chad Hummel. My friends, there are so many ways of subverting the legal process. I couldn't even begin to count them all. But let's just not forget the good old fashioned lie. And when I say lie, I'm talking about when somebody just makes up a thing, when they make up a claim or make up a defense. Michael Troke told me another story about how sometimes good liars show up in unexpected clothing. 
I had a woman a number of years ago who came to me and said that uh, she was going through a child custody battle with her husband and that the psychological evaluator in the case had recommended that she lose custody of her children to her husband and that in the report it had been written that the evaluator thought this gal was psychotic because she had an obsession that the individual who had reported to the Department of Children and Family Services the alleged abuse was in cahoots with her husband. And so I read the evaluation and the evaluator did, in fact, make the recommendation to flip custody and did make that comment about my client being obsessed with this notion that her husband was in cahoots with a Sunday school teacher that had contacted the Department of Children and Family Services. So I got on the phone and I called the Sunday school uh, where the Sunday school teacher uh, had worked. And I got the superior person who was in the administration. And I said, by the way, I'm representing Mrs. Smith. That's a fake name. I'm representing Mrs. Smith in this case. And I was wondering if I could talk to you about this Sunday school teacher and her report. And the administrator said, can you wait a moment? I'd like to close the door. And uh, so she came back and she said, well, let me just tell you that this Sunday school teacher works as a part-time nanny for the mother of the girlfriend of that husband. In other words, the estranged husband had a girlfriend and that girlfriend had a child from a prior relationship. And this Sunday school teacher who filed this report was a part-time nanny for the husband's girlfriend's child. It gets worse. I subpoenaed the Sunday school teacher to take her deposition. I took her deposition. Did you make a report to the Department of Children and Family Services? Yes, I did. And what was the report? Well, the report was that I saw this little girl, and I mean, she must have been seven years old. She said, I saw her in the bathroom masturbating uh, in the stall, um, and I felt that those were circumstances usually where they're imitating things that have happened in real life. And that's what prompted me to uh, make the report. And I said, well, how long did you observe this little girl masturbating? And she said, well, for about five or six minutes. I said, you sat there in the bathroom for... Five or six minutes watching this little girl masturbate? She goes, well, yes, I did. I looked at her and I said, did this really happen? And she said, no. And so I said, well, well, what did happen? She tells me that she's the part-time nanny for the girlfriend of the husband, that she was over at their home one day, and that the girlfriend was saying that there was this nasty child custody dispute going on with a horrible ex-wife. Could you do me a favor? I know that this woman is a bad person. And so she said, I'm a good Christian woman, and so I believed what this gal was telling me. So I went up into the master bedroom. The girlfriend called the Department of Children's Services and then put me on the phone, and they would ask me questions. And every time they asked me a question, I would repeat it, and then she would mouth to me what the response should be. And so she admitted that she made a fake report to the Department of Children's and Family Services which then was relied upon by a child custody evaluator with a recommendation being to flip custody. I then took the deposition of the child custody evaluator, and I asked her a simple hypothetical question. If, in fact, that Sunday school teacher had made all of this up, would your recommendation have been different? Well, of course, but a Sunday school teacher wouldn't have made that up. What motivation would she have for that? I mean, she's a mandatory reporter, at which point I then read her the excerpts from the Sunday school teacher's deposition, and she then reversed 
the recommendations that she had made and even said that the visits with the father should be monitored to make sure that his new girlfriend couldn't be involved. Then I took the deposition of the new girlfriend. And the new girlfriend had been involved in a child custody case with a former husband in Florida where she had been accused of having her child participate in child pornography and went through a whole investigation with the Department of Children and Family Services. And essentially, I got her to admit that she had learned how to set somebody up with the Department of Children and Family Services in the state of Florida. So what happens to all of these people after they admit having committed perjury and concocted these very serious claims against other people? My client at the time, her primary focus in life was her daughter. She didn't want to lose custody of her daughter. And so, quite frankly, to get the custody proposal reversed where she had full custody, to her that was the woo, sigh of relief, thank God that I didn't lose custody of my daughter. But nothing happened to these other folks. And you're really hitting on what I think is a very key problem, is that once somebody makes the false accusation against you, you're so caught up in trying to disprove it. You've got to retain lawyers. You've got to beat it back. But once you get past it, you just don't have the energy, perhaps, to bring them to justice. That was Michael Trope with yet another example of how lawless litigation can be. So what can we do to make it better? I started some solution spinning with Paul Derby. What if at the end of every case, instead of requiring litigants to bring a whole new lawsuit, they could bring the equivalent of a motion for malicious prosecution, which would entitle them some big penalty plus some guaranteed percentage of their attorney's fees. You know, maybe we got to work that out. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that the concept of just kind of reducing the cost and streamlining the process is a good one. Uh, It raises a whole host of issues. One, uh, that motion requires its own discovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, being able to prove maliciousness under the elements of that claim requires discovery that's probably beyond what would have already happened in the lawsuit. So you're talking about something that will shorten the process and undoubtedly reduce the cost, but it's not going to be something that simply file a motion, see it through, you know, there you go. Uh, You've got a maliciousness determination. So it's still going to be a very expensive process and it's still going to suffer from the problem that you've already spent all this money to get to the end result. Very rarely in California, it follows the sort of American rule that you don't get your attorney's fees. So absent there being some very limited statutory basis or something in the contract at issue, if it is a contract dispute, for the most part, you can't get your fees. So you're now sitting on a win, but it's really a loss. You've just spent a ton of money. To spend more money, even if it's in connection with a motion and a new phase of discovery, is still a lot. I think it's a huge hurdle for anyone other than a fairly wealthy and really annoyed litigant to do that. The other problem is that California has got this anti-slap law. There's a provision in the Civil Procedure Code that if a lawsuit is filed that very generally either involves an issue of public concern and public interest or involves litigation activity, and obviously the filing of either a motion or a complaint for malicious prosecution does, then the burden shifts to the party who's bringing the motion, in your example, or bringing the lawsuit for malicious prosecution to prove that they have the goods 
on the merits. And just winning is certainly not enough to show maliciousness. Lots of good faith litigants lose. So now you've got to, in the absence of at least a right to discovery, prove your case or at least show you've got you know very good evidence on your case and how that anti-slap rule would work if it were a motion instead of a new lawsuit is not something I've really contemplated, but might be challenging. You, you certainly would have that right, I would think, to claim that the motion was a strategic lawsuit or motion against public policy. And now you're back in the same predicament if you're bringing a malicious prosecution claim. So not only is it expensive, but unless you really have the goods fairly early on, your maliciousness claim could get dismissed. And what you suggested, I think, may be a good idea, but it doesn't resolve some of those fundamental hurdles to bringing that sort of a claim. That was Paul Derby, who pointed out some of the challenges in addressing what I think is a problem of courts being commandeered by some of the same sorts of lawlessness against which they're trying to protect us. So it's going to be a tough problem to solve, but we got to stay at it. Here I am with Chad Hummel. I think that there are more, let's just call them, since this is a family-friendly show, shenanigans than should be happening in various civil courts around the country. I think that in some very critical respects, the system isn't working for people, uh, be it because of court overcrowding or lawyers who think that they don't have to play by the rules. Tell me if you think I am being too negative, but I think that the system of civil litigation is a little bit broken. I agree with you. In California in particular, and in state court even more particularly, the judges are overwhelmed. The caseload is massive. The workload is incredible. And again, the vast majority of judges I deal with are incredibly diligent, but there's so much to do. And the truth is, as I said a while ago, the rules and the judges want civil litigants to try to agree. If one side is playing fast and loose with the rules, engaging in shenanigans, as you call them, improper conduct, there isn't a referee sitting over their shoulder saying, uh, 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 you know, you don't do that. And you know, that happens often. All the time. And you're right, Tanya. It happens in situations where often the people can least afford it to happen. Legal fees run up fast. You know, in the civil case, there's something called discovery where the parties are supposed to exchange information. Well, you rely on the integrity of the lawyer to make sure that stuff gets produced on time and that the rules are followed in that regard. If they're not, The court's not in a position to say, hey, you lawyer B over there, produce the stuff or I'm going to sanction you. And they don't do it, which is fine, except that the system, as you say, is broken in that regard. The other thing is I'm all for alternative dispute resolution and arbitration clauses where people get together and try contractually to work things out or have some other way to do it. The truth is there are cases where judges just need to sit and make decisions, call balls and strike as they see them and be courageous enough to say this is enough. I'm not putting up with you anymore. Get out of my court. You're a vexatious litigant. You're maliciously prosecuting this case. Enough. And I don't see that often enough. This is not a dig on any judges, because as you point out, most of them are great. But don't you think that sometimes there's this reticence to kind of step up and call an end to the nonsense because they don't want to be appealed? You know, if you've got a litigant who's causing this much trouble in your courtroom, that same kind of litigant is going to be the type that's going to take you up on you know, an appeal. And then judges don't want to get appealed. Do that's, you think that that influences some of this too? I think that's true. I'm not sure that's all of it. I think judges are afraid to be wrong and they can't all the time look at all the evidence. But when they have seen all the evidence, they shouldn't be afraid to say, that's it, get out, done. 
and let the appeal fall where it might. You know, I think you're probably in part right. But I think the other thing that I've seen more often than not is a judge is going to let a litigant have their day in court. I believe strongly that people have a right to their day in court, but people have a right also not to have courts so easily and casually weaponized. I think that if you are someone who doesn't have the money to fight back against really frivolous misconduct, you're just going to have to sit back and take it. And that just doesn't seem right to me. It's not right. I don't have an answer to it. I will say that I'm a lawyer who is very reticent to file sanctions motions on behalf of clients who are often upset for the very reasons that you suggest. Why are you reticent to do that? I'd rather just win on the facts and the truth ultimately will win out in lawsuits. I actually believe that, believe it or not. And I think you do too. It may take a long, winding, circuitous, expensive road to get there sometimes and shouldn't be necessary, but I believe in juries. I believe the judges more often than not, by far, get it right when they are presented with the facts. And judges hate to deal with lawyer A calling lawyer B a liar over whether a document was produced in response to the appropriate document request or an interrogatory was filled out or whatever it is. Now, frivolous claims are a different story. Our system deals with it in a couple ways. One is fee shifting under limited circumstances where the loser pays. Another is very limited circumstances, contractual, but very limited circumstances that's changing. And and in the case of, I think, you know, the right of publicity in California, if there's a lawsuit, loser pays either way, by the way, there's also malicious prosecution, which if you can prove that a lawsuit was objectively baseless and pursued for a bad motive, you can recover. But then you've got to relive the whole thing again. So if somebody makes up a lawsuit against you and you win You then have to bring a brand new piece of litigation against them with all of the attendant discovery and expense and then hope that you win that. And risk. And risk. And risk. Now, the third way that the system deals with it is what you referenced before, sanctions. So if somebody is way out of bounds in a particular lawsuit, the court can step in and order monetary or issue sanctions and police the conduct. It's rare the courts do it. I've seen it happen in many cases. But ordinarily, judges hate dealing with sanctions motions. And I understand why. I don't understand why. They (laughs) should want them because they should know that if they vigorously enforce the rules and if they give these motions the attention that they deserve, then maybe they'll deter future misconduct. I mean, if I were a judge, I'd say I'm going to be all over the bad kind. I mean, you see how I am on my show. I'm just arbitrating small claims cases. I think that it's outrageous that people are sometimes put to the burdens that they are and then have to work so hard to get a little bit of justice. I have this idea. I don't know if it's a good idea. I've been running it past people. What if we made it possible to bring a motion for malicious prosecution at the end of a case? The motion is heard by the same judge who heard the trial matter. And in that motion, you can attach the lawyers. Because here's the thing we should remind people of. A lawyer has an obligation not to bring any claim or defense for which they don't have a good faith basis, correct? Exactly. So in my idea, at the end of the case, you bring your motion. And if you can show that the lawyer was just making stuff up, then you should be able to attach the lawyer to. What do you think about my idea, Chad Hummel? I think it's a great idea. I have to give it more thought. But I think the benefit of the idea is you've got the judge who just sat through the case 
and can look at it with knowledgeable eyes and a mind that has a good idea about what the facts are, decide it. Well, Chad, I, for one, am glad that you chose this profession because you do it a great honor and you do me a great honor by being on the show. Thank you for joining me, my friend. Come back. That was so fun. You're awesome. clear about something. I don't think that the majority of cases that are filed or the majority of defenses that are asserted are done so in bad faith. And I think that most participants in the system play by the rules, or at least I hope they do. One of the biggest problems our court system faces is ensuring access to justice. And while we look at some of the things that can go wrong in the court system, we should be careful not to close the courtroom doors to the people who need justice the most. Still, that doesn't mean we should turn a blind eye to the ease with which some can misuse court resources, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't come up with better ways of protecting people from this kind of misconduct. So let's keep thinking it through. Special thanks to Michael Trope of Trope Fine LLP, Chad Hummel of Sidley and Austin, and Paul Derby of Skiermont Derby for joining me today. This is The Tanya Acker Show. If you like us, and I hope you do, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review, and maybe I'll even have a chance to read it on the air. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Our editor is Roland Tia. Our composer is Evan Cunningham. Our social media consultant is Independent Creativity. Our production assistants are Chris Embry and Rachel Robillard. Our production consultant is Mike Agavino. And we record our program at the Network Studios in Culver City, California. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.